Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Hang Out in the Holy Land, Land Grant Holy Land's flagship podcast. And we've got a special edition coming to you today, special recap of the Indiana-Ohio State game. And we've got a pinch hitter today. Meredith Hine is stepping in for Gene. Uh, Gene is watching some New York Giants football. I don't know why. Uh, maybe that appeals to him for some reason. I'm going to take a dig at his team. Uh, you know, Meredith and I, we are Browns and Bengals fans, so uh, maybe we'll chop that up later. But Meredith is a host of Play Like a Girl podcast on the website, and I really like her written stuff. So happy to have her in today. Meredith, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be here, Josh. Yeah, well, we appreciate you uh, coming in and trying to maybe keep me in line here, but we're going to get right into it, recapping um, Ohio State's 54-7 to victory over the Indiana Hoosiers last night. Uh, rainy game, messy game, but uh, not for Ohio State's o- offense, obviously. This thing got ugly really quick, Meredith. Um, you know, Indiana, to their credit, put up a quick seven. We had a 7-7 tie and then 47 unanswered by the Buckeyes. Um, I thought offense looked really good in, I would say, adverse conditions. I thought it would be a bit messier than it was. The defense was able to be super aggressive and attack. So, you know, all in all, just a a total dominant victory from the Buckeyes, Ryan Day and crew. Um, I want to kick it over to you, Meredith. Overall themes, like what do you take away from this game? Is it more of of a dominant Ohio State team? Is it Indiana just struggling and being beaten up? Where are you at? Yeah. So I would say there's really three factors and you've sort of already addressed all of them. Like number one, Ohio State's offense is humming to put it lightly. CJ Stroud basically had his fourth straight perfect game. Once again, 21 for 28, 266 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Um, and this was in my second point, horrible conditions. Um, it was a really lovely day in Chicago yesterday and turning on the TV and seeing the conditions in Bloomington just made me very sad. It was disgusting. Um, but being able to play in those conditions and, uh, continue to play at a high level, I think was, you know, another theme. And then the last one is like, Indiana's not good as it turns out. Um, granted all five of their losses have come to top 11 teams. So, you know, sucks for Tom Allen and Indiana that 
that's the lot that they drew this season. Uh, but you know, all of those definite, those factors definitely came together for this 47 point win by Ohio State uh, that also meant I could comfortably go to bed at the end of the third quarter. Yeah, it's it's one of those games where it's really enta- entertaining up until a point, and then the backups come in and the third stringers, and you're just like, look, as much as I love the Buckeyes, I've got maybe some better stuff to do. Um, I'm tired. It's time to go to bed. Maybe there's another game on. But yeah, I mean, they really wiped the floor with the Hoosiers, and you brought up all of their losses being to top 11 opponents, um, three in the Big Ten East, one in the West, and then the Cincinnati game. You had that stat for us before the game. Um, This was just, it was an unfair matchup, right? Indiana was coming in very banged up. They didn't have their quarterback. They haven't had their quarterback for a couple of weeks now. Um, The defensive side of the ball, Again, just as banged up, if not more, especially in the secondary, which was a strength for them really in the first couple of weeks, even though the results weren't great. And I think it starts with quarterback. And so maybe we'll hit on the defensive side of the ball first for Ohio State, because I think that they figured out early on that Indiana just didn't have it. Yes, they went down the field and they scored on their first possession. They hit Peyton Hendershot three or four times. I think that that's something I wrote about during the week. You know, watch out for Peyton Hendershot. Ohio State linebackers have not had to guard or spend a lot of time in coverage. So Indiana took advantage of that. But it was probably a quick correction by Matt Barnes and those guys on the defensive side of the ball. Um, You could tell that Cody Simon just wasn't comfortable, and again, the Hoosiers took advantage of that. But Ohio State quickly realized they were not going to be stopped on offense. So I think that they allowed the defense to really just go and play see ball, get ball, aggressive defense. I don't think that they overcomplicated things. I don't think that they had to. They said, hey, here's what we're going to do with Peyton Hendershot. We're going to make sure that we've got... Denzel Burke or Seven Banks um, blanketing Ty Freifogel, which I was a bit surprised that he was ineffective. But to the other, you know, eight, nine, ten other guys on the field, it was, hey, get up the field, get after the quarterback or uh, the ball carrier, and just sort of wreak havoc. We saw that seven sacks. Um, I think Indiana had... I think 31 total yards after that first drive. So I think the defense looked so good because they didn't have to think about anything. They could just play an aggressive kind of all out style of defense. Do you think that's fair to say? For sure. And one of those factors early on, you know, they did march down the field. The Hoosiers did and score a touchdown on their first drive. That was with Jack Tuttle, who got very much wounded at the end of that first drive. Um, and then, you know, we've seen this mix of putting in Donovan McCauley a little bit for Indiana, um, but he's very much, he was intended to come in on certain packages, right? But now all of a sudden you're seeing a mix of Tuttle as he's trying to not be, you know, injured and play better. But you also have McCauley coming in, you have Grant Grummel coming in. Um, and so Indiana was really unable to find a rhythm when it comes to passing or when it came to passing. 
um, which meant that Ohio State could ultimately sell out for the run. And as you mentioned, uh, 31 yards after their first drive, 48 total yards uh, rushing for the game for Indiana. Um, So I think those factors certainly played in Ohio State's favor. Uh, As an aside, did you know that Jack Tuttle and Chris Olave played high school ball together? Yeah, so that's... That was a cute little moment. Yeah, I got to give credit to Gene. We were doing our podcast during the week and he said that, uh, you know, Ohio State went to recruit Jack Tuttle and stumbled across Chris Olave, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't know. That was kind of a fun moment when they shared like Chris Olave's birthday tweet to Jack Tuttle from like three years ago, which was fun. (laughs) Um, But anyway, yeah. So as you said, I actually was pretty high on Ty Freifogel last week as well. I really thought that he would be more of a factor again, whether as well as having a three quarterback rotation definitely inhibits the passing game. Um, But Freifogel finished with one catch for 30 yards and no touchdowns. It was a far cry from his three touchdown performance in 2020 for Indiana. Um, Again, didn't have Michael Penix throwing to him who really is a great quarterback and it just sucks that he's had all of these season ending injuries um, and really hasn't been able to finish out for Indiana. Yeah, his uh, his career has just been one setback after another, and I don't know how likely it is, especially now that this team is two and five. But I don't know how likely it is that he gets back. I hope that he does because I'd like to see Indiana with Penix back there, and with you know they've got some good receiving options. You brought up Ty Freifogel. I don't know his speed or his power boost may just be Sean Wade across from him. Who knows? Uh, That's probably an (laughs) unnecessary shot, but uh, he was definitely clamped down by uh, this year's version of the Ohio State secondary. And you brought up the quarterback situation for Indiana. Clearly, Donovan McCulley is a raw passer, right? I think that we saw him, even the limited number of throws that he had, they were often off target. And it looked like his ability to process the game is not quite there yet, but he's got, uh, you know, he's one of, the, one of, if not the highest quarterback recruits that Indiana has ever brought in. And you could tell that there's some running ability there. Are you surprised at all that they didn't just say, hey, look, we know what this game's about to turn into. Let's just keep McCulley in there, run some RPO, some read option stuff, and let him be an athlete. Are you surprised that they continued to mix and match? Yes, very much so. Because to your point, he has the raw talent. Uh, Tom Allen actually, you know, kind of officially removed McCulley's red shirt, just given the injury situation to their quarterbacks this season. Um, And so it's like, if you're going to try to say, okay, let's use this as an opportunity to give this young quarterback experience, give him the experience, let him actually run the offense, but, you know, putting him in, pulling him out, like alternating with this Grant Gremmel character who was three for four for nine yards. Um, you know, it doesn't really give you an opportunity to see what you can really do. Um, Macaulay did finish one for six for 30 yards, um, in the game, but really just inhibiting, like, Tuttle's not like you want to keep Tuttle out and you've already lost the game at that point. Right. So why not just use it as a learning opportunity? I I had to kind of stop myself from laughing too loud in the audio when you said Grant Gremmel was three for four for nine yards. I mean, (laughs) look, I get it. He was probably their fourth guy coming into the season and he 
uh, probably sure as heck wasn't ready to play. But Indiana just had no answers on offense. Stephen Carr, their running back, I think has been a disappointment, not in the sense that he doesn't have the talent. You know, he flashed a little bit at USC, but I think he's uh, running behind a, a struggling offensive line. He had 10 carries for 13 yards, and he was outrushed by Trent Howland with five carries for 17 yards. So they couldn't get it. Exactly. Exactly. So they just couldn't get anything going uh, really through the run or the passing game. And again, I don't know that it's anything Ohio State did that was really special beyond they just let their athletes be athletes. We saw up front, especially um, those guys, Haskell Garrett, Zach Harrison and company, they were able to physically dominate the Indiana offensive line. I misspoke. They actually ended up with five sacks, but it seemed like they had nine or ten. Ton of tackles for loss, which I think took away from the sack number. They had some McCulley runs that I think were initially attributed as sacks, but they ended up being tackles for loss because I guess apparently he was trying to run somewhere. Um, But you got to give kudos to the secondary. Indiana had really nothing going through the passing game, and that's probably a bit of a shot at Jack Tuttle too, but he didn't have the options, and Devin McCulley didn't have the options to throw to open guys really after that first drive as far as Peyton Hendershot goes. I think they completed six passes after that, um, after Peyton Hendershot had three on the first drive. So, um, you know, I think the defensive line, though, is really coming around. My question is, though, are they really coming around or is it a reflection of the teams that they're going up against? Are they going up against inferior offensive lines and that's what's making them look so good right now? Yeah, I have to agree with that take. you, you came away from last night feeling like, oh yeah, the stats looked really good in Ohio State's favor, but also did we learn anything? I don't think we did. Um, again, Indiana, they finished passing only 17 times last night. Um, and when you can sell out for the run that much, when you're not giving quarter, very inexperienced quarterbacks who are extremely, they were flustered in the pocket, unable to do things. Obviously, the defensive line that's much more experienced is going to win that matchup every time. Um, I think to your previous point, like an area that we can say has been an improvement this year is the secondary, because we do have the data to know that Hendershot and Freifogel are good receivers and tight ends. But the fact that Ohio State completely shut them down again, uh, limiting really just to that first drive alone. Um, But uh yeah, I, I'd say that was probably the biggest takeaway for me on defense. I really can't say I can't make heads or tails of the defensive line, except to say that they did exactly what we would expect a better team to do against an inferior offensive line. Yeah, and that's really where I'm at. Even going back the last handful of games, I I think that Ohio State's defense is much improved. Um, I'm very confident that they are at least somewhat improved, but I just don't know to what extent. Um, Rutgers, Maryland, and now Indiana, these teams, uh, at least a couple of them had success earlier in the year, and they've all sort of come back to the pack, and they've all sort of fallen off to where, gosh, the Big Ten East is not looking nearly as good as it did a handful of weeks ago or just a couple of weeks ago. So 
you know, it, it's tough for me. I think that this Ohio State defense is definitely trending in the right direction. I just I don't know if they're ball stoppers yet. I don't know how good they're going to be until we go up against um, a better opponent. And now I'm asking myself, when is that going to be? Without getting too far down the road, and we'll talk about schedule later on, but I don't know, Meredith. Like, At, at what point is Ohio State going to be tested on defense? I mean, realistically, okay. <laughs> Uh, with the exception, I hate to say it of Michigan and I guess Michigan state, but they also got shut down by Indiana. Like Penn state is a competent offense, right? Well, I, thought so. I say that then they lost in nine overtimes to Illinois. Well, we'll put a pin on that. Cause I have some comments about that, but we would, ha- we would have to assume that Penn state is at least like generally competent maybe. Um, and so if Ohio state can do to Penn state exactly what they did to Indiana, maybe we learn a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, coming up, it almost feels like maybe we have to wait until Michigan to know definitively what Ohio state's defense can do against a more powerful offense. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I think it's, it's tough to say otherwise right now because you look at these teams that they've beaten up on since. Maryland does not look like the same team. Rutgers does not look like the same team. Although I don't know how they were scoring in the first place. And Indiana <laughs> is just beat to all hell. So I, I, one thing I am very confident in saying though is, and we'll kind of gravitate towards the other side of the ball, this defense is going to have some wiggle room because the offense is bananas right now. Um, I, I really don't even know what else to say. I feel like everyone has sort of pontificated and said all these great things. And I have to agree with all of them. Uh, you know, the last three games, Ohio State has outscored their opponents 172 to 37. C.J. Stroud has thrown for 1,002 yards, 14 touchdowns. No interceptions. Um, he has now gone... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Those three games right there, and then you just you add on Travion Henderson. C.J. Stroud has got this thing humming, and I think a lot of credit is due to Ryan Day. But for me, it starts at the quarterback position. You and I were talking a little bit before the pod. You know, Just think back to that Tulsa game where Ohio State won by three scores, but it was the Travion Henderson show. Um, how impressed are you with the growth and development of C.J. Stroud over the last you know, couple of games? Um, extremely, extremely. Uh, so Stroud had, what, five touchdowns apiece against Rutgers, Maryland, and Akron. That might not be right. but Well, no, he was out all, for the Akron game, and then he had four right, last night. Again, it yep. was against, you're right, thank you. It was against Rutgers and Maryland that he had five touchdowns, zero picks, um, and coming back against Big Ten opponents. And it just is shocking that we think back to Tulsa when there was quarterback controversy and questions about if Stroud was the right person for the job. And I'm going to make like a blanket comparison that is extremely imperfect. So please forgive me. But in 2014, we had questions at different position groups very early in the season. We lost to Virginia Tech. 
um, those questions became, you know, much louder. Uh, and then everyone got much, much better. And it almost feels in a similar way that this year at quarterback, we're seeing that same sort of growth, um, lose to Oregon. Stroud actually had a very good game against Oregon, um, stumbles against Tulsa, and then he kicks it into high gear. And we have to remember that he threw minimal passes last year as a backup to Justin Fields. And so this was really his first ever game experience. He literally went from zero to 60 and is now playing. I'm going to say it perfect for three straight games. Yeah. That is impressive. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to say that that's hyperbole because he hasn't turned the ball over Um, his QBR. If you really read into anything, read into that at all is up around 200, which I think he's second in the country right now. Again, if you, if you read into QBR or passer rating, I think he's only behind Grayson McCall at uh, Coastal Carolina. I think it starts with CJ Stroud for this reason. We, and Travion Henderson too, I don't want to take anything away from him, but we at least knew what we had coming into the season as far as the offensive line, the outstanding wide receiver core that we have, we knew that those things, we didn't have to worry about those two parts of the ball, um, parts of the game. And then as far as a running back goes, we didn't know that, I didn't know that Travion Henderson was going to be this special, but I was fairly confident in Ohio State's ability to at least patch something together and look good out there uh, with a running back, whether that was Master Teague, whether that was Mayan Williams introducing Travion Henderson slowly. I just figured they would be okay there. And now I think they're they're much better than okay. But at quarterback, you alluded to it. I mean, this kid did nothing last year. Uh, he had a long touchdown run. He took a couple snaps. But Gene and I have talked about this too. He needed to grow and mature and develop and... If anything, I'm I'm so happy now that Ryan Day stuck to his convictions and that he stuck with C.J. Stroud because there was a lot of outside noise. And, you know, Ryan Day is probably not going to listen to that too much. He sure as heck doesn't need to hear from me or you. But I, I wonder if there were any doubts that crept into his head after that Tulsa game. And then Kyle McCord at least looked solid against Akron. Enough to where I I wonder if he was like, hey, you know, Kyle's first game, he did X, Y, and Z. He looked good. CJ's been struggling. Um, But I'm glad that he has not kind of veered from the path. He has stuck, like I said, um, by his convictions. And he he knows what CJ Stroud is capable of. He clearly saw this in practice. He clearly saw this preseason. And now, you know, he's got a star on his hands. So, um, you know, I, I don't know where this all kind of goes from, goes from here, but I'll put you on the spot. I, I, I don't want you to compare them. That's not fair. It's very early, but do you think that CJ Stroud can be as good as Justin Fields? I'll, I'll present it that way. I think he certainly has the potential to be, uh, one of the things that we've sort of glossed over here is that he's surrounded by unequivocally the best skill position players in the country and he's anchored by the best offensive line in the country. And I think like, yes, obviously I'm a Homer. I'm an Ohio state fan here. Uh, but 
Ohio State's offensive line has really come together this year. And so Stroud has all of the tools that he needs at his disposal to be outstanding. Um, and so I think if he continues in that development, continues to use those tools, there's no reason that he should not finish his career at Ohio State. Um, well, I say career, at least this year, while all of those things are available to him um, with a similar level of success to Justin Fields. Yeah, I think you I think you put that very well. And I didn't want to put you on the spot too much. I think they're completely different players, yeah. but you're starting to see some of the the same things as far as how they play the quarterback position. CJ is obviously not nearly the runner that Justin was. Um, he doesn't want to run. I love yeah. watching when he's just like, he has a clear five yard gain, right? And he's like, nope, I'm going to hold off and see if I can pass this for 15. And he does. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I, I appreciate his patience. There are times though, where I'm just like, dude, take the eight yard gain. So you take the seven or eight yards, get down. Um, but yeah, he's a very patient quarterback. Um, and his accuracy has just gone, uh, I'll, I'll use your term, from zero to 60 real quick. The throw he had over the middle to Jackson Smith and Jigba, you'll see that on highlight reels for the rest of the season. Uh, mm -hmm. You want to talk about threading a needle. That was legitimately one of the better throws I've seen from an Ohio State quarterback in the last decade. And I don't think that's hyperbole. That was just chef's kiss on that one. Um, the throw he had to Chris Olave for his touchdown kind of in the corner. I wouldn't call it a fade. He, he kind of put it on a rope, sort of a uh, a back shoulder rope fade, I guess, is, is how I would define it. Um, but only Olave was catching that ball. Some of the throws that he has produced over the last couple of weeks, you're like, okay, that is some Justin Fields stuff because Justin yeah. Fields had the ability to put it in a tight window, uh, throw his guys open, and that's where I'm starting to draw some comparisons, just the accuracy as a passer between these two guys. Yeah, and if we want to talk about an area that maybe Stroud has surpassed Fields in, um, one of the criticisms of Fields as a pro prospect was, you know, he's so willing to tuck and run maybe before reading the whole field and looking for that pass. Um, and yes, we might feel frustrated with Stroud for not taking that eight yard gain. Um, but the fact that he has that patience in the pocket and is willing to wait for things to open up, um, I think is an area that, you know, to our previous discussion, maybe he, he is growing faster than Fields was. Yeah, he's a patient quarterback, and he's clearly received some some really great coaching to sort of teach him how to have that patience. And to your point, if you don't run or you don't run as often, you greatly reduce your uh, your chance of getting injured. And we, you know, C.J. Stroud, he had the shoulder thing, and so maybe he was hesitant to do so early in the season, but now he's just sort of adapted and he's like, Hey, I'm not going to risk it. I know I had this bum shoulder earlier and you know, I can throw for 300 yards with these guys with my eyes closed at this point. So that could be part of the reason too, but it can't just be a CJ Stroud love fest. Um, everyone kind of balled out on this offense, even if that, even if it was in limited opportunities, Travion Henderson had another fantastic game. Only nine carries, though, one reception. Those 10 
touches resulted in three touchdowns. This kid is a home run threat every single time he catches the ball. He may have been a little dinged up early in the game, but he came back in, and then he didn't have to do much in the second half. You and I talked about it a little bit before we jumped on the pod. It's um, It can be a good thing that his reps are limited. We're not uh, burning him out, especially as a true freshman. But at the same time, with Trayvon Henderson, I'd kind of sort of like to see him play into a third or fourth quarter and see what his durability level is at because now we've seen him banged up a couple of times, even if it was just for a series. He has you know, removed himself from the game or been taken out of the game for stretches where you're like, man, you know, is he... I, I know that he's capable of it, but are we going to see Travion Henderson get 25 carries in a game? I don't know. Uh, As you mentioned, he had nine carries yesterday. He had 16 against Maryland and then eight each against Rutgers and Akron. And it's great because, you know, 30% of his touches last night resulted in a touchdown, as you mentioned. And so he doesn't need to be on the field that often. But when we are facing teams that are not called Indiana, that might be a little bit tougher to score against. Does he need to be able to carry 25 times a game? Like I, I had this conversation a couple of times before we even chatted this morning with some folks and general consensus is like conditioning is a thing that happens in practice. And so how is Henderson getting conditioned in practice to be able to play into the third and fourth quarter? Um, But at the same time, even heading into the season, before we realized how good Henderson is, we were sort of looking at the running back position as a running back by committee approach, because you do have Henderson, you do have Williams, um, you have Master Teague, uh, and then you have up and comers like Evan Pryor, who are able to competently carry the ball, right? Um, And so it was only after a few games, really after Tulsa, that Henderson emerged as this kind of solidified number one back. Um, and so as we move on in the season, will Henderson still be this primary back up to a point where we need to start rotating Williams and Teague in a little bit more consistently? Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be a luxury, I think, because we were, or we anticipated leaning more on Master Teague and Mayan Williams early in the season. It was good to see Mayan Williams back and really in the flow of things. He had eight carries for 60 yards and a touchdown. Again, he didn't do a, a lot late. His damage was done early in the game, but it, it's good to have him back in the fold. Hopefully, Master Teague is back soon. And, you know, I asked the question, but maybe we don't need Travion Henderson to receive 25 carries. Maybe this is something akin to, and this is going to be close to your heart, a Nick Chubb, uh, Kareem Hunt sort of thing. Where, oh, bless your heart. Thank you. Yeah, I, I knew you would appreciate <laughs> that. Um, but maybe they can have a, a primary back and then a... I don't want to say a backup, a, a complimentary back who is more than just a complimentary back, if that makes sense. Like they could be a number one guy, but they know that Travion Henderson in this instance is the clear one. And so, but they, they're able to lean on Kareem Hunt, just like the Browns were able to like, you know, give him a decent contract and say, hey, we're going to use two running backs. If Travion Henderson is not going to receive 25 carries per game, I think they're going to be fine, and maybe it's good in the long run that they're going to kind of spare him some of the hits and keep him fresh because you mentioned it, 30% of the time he touched the ball last night resulted in a touchdown, and then I think on the season, 
Um, he's at 14 touchdowns now. He is four behind Maurice Claret's freshman uh, record at Ohio State. I think he'll catch that or he'll break that easily. But 14 touchdowns and oh, I want to say like 80 to 82 touches. I wish I had it pulled up in front of me, but I having some issues with the old laptop here. But roughly 15, 16% of the time on the season, he's scoring when he touches the ball. So um, he continues to do his thing. I mentioned Mayan Williams back in the fold. And then passing game, receivers, just another ho-hum, nearly 100 yards from Jackson Smith and Jigba. Garrett Wilson had a very quiet five catches for 59 yards. Chris Olave, two catches, 24 yards, and a touchdown. It's odd. It's almost like these receivers can just take turns having a game, and then the other two are luxuries. And that's just... That's wild to me. You know, I, I feel like Chris Olave wasn't involved at all, but then they're like, okay, hey, let's have an Olave drive because I think he had three or four targets on the drive that he scored, uh, and that touchdown was his 30th as an Ohio State Buckeye. The number four is very popular. That puts him four behind David Boston for an Ohio State wide receiver record. Um, and Jeremy Ruckert got involved. I have been... Uh, you know, pounding the table for Jeremy Ruckert all season. I did so in the preseason. We've all been doing it for years. <laughs> yeah, and I know you're part of the fan club, so I'm going to turn it back over to you here in a second. But five catches in a game. I, I had to, like, you know, check my eyes to make sure that that was accurate. 47 yards, two touchdowns. You want to talk about a luxury. Jeremy Ruckert is absolutely a luxury. Ryan Day talked about it in the post game as well. You know, Jeremy Ruckert, to me, profiles as an NFL tight end. I'm not going to say he's Travis Kelsey or Kyle Pitts or anybody like that. I don't think he's anywhere near that. But I think he's an NFL pass-catching tight end. He's worked on his blocking. I would say he's now a well-above-average blocker. And he is content to do his job, do what's asked of him. And then when the coaching staff dials it up, Hey, Jeremy, we're going to get you five catches and two touchdowns. You know, they probably didn't do that intentionally. Um, but the guy seems very low maintenance, but high floor as a player. I love what he does. Um, so, you know, Meredith, as part of the Jeremy Ruckert fan club, or just any of these pass catchers, what did you see from the receiving group or the pass catchers last night? Um, so a lot of things. Uh, number one, going back to Stroud, they just needed to be open and he delivered them the ball. And so thinking about that from an NFL perspective, um, having guaranteed, almost a guaranteed outstanding pass they're throwing to you. Um, we can see the talent of the NFL level talent of Alave Wilson, Smith and Jigba, like full stop. They will be first rounders someday. Um, and it's also feels good in terms of security to know that with Alave and probably Wilson departing next year, that we have this group of rising receivers uh, coming into the ranks. Um, as an aside, I don't know if you mentioned this, but Smith and Jigba actually led all receivers in yards with 99 last night. Um, again, in the rain, in the gross conditions that we've talked about extensively. Um, but on the note of Jeremy record, um, we were just sitting and waiting and waiting for him to have this game, um, finishing with five catches, 47 yards, two touchdowns, unbelievable. Um, and most of the, those coming in the first half, obviously from Stroud, 
Um, but it's interesting that you brought up the Browns analogy before of, you know, Chubb and Hunt behind an outstanding offensive line. Cause I think that's extremely valid. One of the other things that Kevin Stefanski's offense always does is incorporating tight ends. There's like five tight ends on the Browns roster. So it's very funny for me to be watching an Ohio state game where the rushing game is very similar. Um, and then not incorporating tight ends at all, especially on play action. Um, and I think it was actually you last night who shared that how many times could we throw to Jeremy Rucker before someone decides to cover him? Yeah. And like, was 15 your answer? Because the alternatives are you don't cover Olave, you don't cover Wilson, you don't cover Smith and Jigba. And uh, I think you described it as a luxury and it really is a luxury to have someone like Jeremy Ruckert, who is so capable of catching passes when his name gets called, when it's play action, when things are not opening up the way that Stroud is looking for them to, but also uh, having him on the field to be able to be a blocker, um, you know, in any other type of situation. So uh, really excited for him. What a great night. What a highlight reel. And yes, hopefully we will see him in the NFL very soon. Yeah, and uh, you got to give some love to Cade Stover and Joe Royer, too. So seven total catches for the Ohio State tight ends. That might be some sort of modern-day record. I assume that it is. Um, I didn't mention that puts Ruck one touchdown away from Jake Stoneburner's record uh, here at Ohio State for tight end. So he's at 12. Stoney put up 13. Stoney is a Columbus, Ohio guy. Uh, I remember watching him play back going to high school. So... Um, if anyone's going to take that record away from him, I'd like for it to be Jeremy Ruckert. Just a couple other things to touch on before I want to get to national landscape. I want to hit on that little uh, nine overtime game that you mentioned, but 50 plus in four straight games for the Buckeyes, 500 yards in six straight. They're humming, and we can't. We'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the offensive line. They continue to eat, literally and figuratively. They look dominant. They Along with C.J. Stroud, I think that those two units are kind of carrying or setting the setting the standard for Ohio State's offense right now. As good as the running backs and the wide receivers have been, a lot of that stuff would not be possible without protection for C.J. Stroud and then him delivering the ball. So um, offensive line looks great. No matter what alignment, no matter who they put out there, they have blocked really well. So all in all... It's a 54-7 to game over an inferior opponent at this point. We had a lot of higher expectations coming into the season for the Ohio State-Indiana game, but this Buckeye team continues to get right. They continue to improve. The defense um, gets more and more reps under their belt. So um, all good things moving forward. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Speaking of moving forward, Ohio State, Penn State next weekend, another Saturday night game. Ohio State's going to wear the all-scarlets. It should be a great atmosphere, but I don't know if it's going to be a great game now. Um, We saw Penn State lose an epic, epic battle at home against Burt Bielema uh, and Illinois. Meredith, this was... 
one of the funnest games I have ever seen. And I, I mean that with all of my heart. It was nowhere near the best game I've ever seen. It was maybe actually one of the worst, but it was so fun. It was like a, a dark comedy to watch <laughs> these two teams um, struggle in overtime. And really, it even goes back to pre-overtime. Oh, yeah. James Franklin is, for whatever reason, a hot candidate supposedly for the USC, the LSU jobs, whatever. Um, His game management, though, is so perplexing sometimes. And I think about late in the game when Penn State, they eventually did hit the field goal to tie it. But I think they had like a third and four, a third and five. And they were content to run the ball right up the middle, get stopped, became fourth and one, fourth and two, had the penalty, they kicked the field goal, water under the bridge. But um, just his conserve, I don't know if he tightens up. I don't know what it is. Um, James Franklin will continue to perplex me, and so will his candidacy as like this great coach <laughs> that everyone has to go out and get. But, I mean, yeah, no, go go ahead, Meredith. I I wanted to go a little bit further, but I just, I, I'm running out of words for James Franklin. I don't know why he's so appealing. You see this, you know, year after year, the confusing decisions. Um, so I I'll turn it over to you. Tell me about that game and what you saw yesterday. Well, for starters, James Franklin is one of the few coaches to successfully beat Ohio State or play them close year in and year out. So. Uh, that certainly makes him, I think, appealing. Even so, if did, so on... did Jeff Brom, and not everyone's knocking down Jeff Brom's LOL. door. <laughs> Fair point. Um, in terms of the overall game, I was so a few thoughts. More generally, what are your thoughts on folks calling this the longest college football game ever? Um, I think that that's disingenuous. I think that that's unfair just because they had the number of overtimes. Um, I don't know what the actual longest game, but I think back to the, uh, gosh, I think it was LSU, Texas A&M. Going Is into that like an overtime four- one? Yeah, that yeah. one, when I think of longest game, and I don't even know if it was, that's like the marathon I think of. For sure. And so when I'm hearing people be like, this is the longest game ever in college football, nine overtimes, I'm like, Okay, it was a full game plus two overtimes plus 14 plays. Like this is not this is not the longest game ever. Um and you called it kind of a dark comedy in some ways. It was a dark comedy. It was also like a comedy of errors cuz you're sitting here and watching two teams who successfully scored 10 points apiece throughout 60 minutes of football like try to get two points. Like these teams have not been able to move two yards on a given play. So why do we think that they will be able to successfully make a two point conversion in a single given play? Um, obviously it took nine overtimes to do it. Um, and so I just found it like, it was extremely entertaining. Like I was on the edge of my seat at no point was I like, this is boring. Do you Um, like the rule? Do you like the new third overtime rule where they need to start going for like two point conversion or three yard plays? I mean, here's the thing. It's meant to the goal of the rule is to speed up play. Right. Mm -hmm. But we ultimately end up with one play walk 97 yards to the other end of the field, one play return to the other side of the field, another play. And so 
it feels like it's, it's exciting in the moment because every play feels like it could be the end, but I liked the old overtime. Yeah. I, I don't know if I love it. I'm really, I'm indifferent. I, you can make any sort of overtime uh, interesting uh, or compelling if you try hard enough, I guess. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of like it. The one thing I know that I don't like is the, the changing ends of the field. Like, what are we doing? Come on. Yeah, there, there's no need for the pageantry and, and the things like that. Like, oh, we got to go back down to the student section and this, that, and the other. Um, there's nothing about slowing down the game when you're walking back and forth to opposite ends. But um, again, yeah, we'll talk about it a little bit because it's Ohio State's next opponent. Penn State, um, I would say that Sean Clifford was probably not healthy. We did not see him run the ball, uh, at least effectively, yesterday. And the Penn State defense, yeesh, you know, they gave up over 300 yards rushing to Illinois. Um, spoiler alert, Illinois is not a good running football team. It's one of the only things they can do, you know, decently, I guess. Um, before Sitkowski went out yesterday, I think he was like 8 for 19 for 38 yards. That was tragic. Maybe tragedy. Uh, like a Greek tragedy was yeah. the overlying theme of that game yesterday. Um, but Penn State, um, I, I don't know if it's a distraction with James Franklin or anything like that, um, but they've forgotten how to score. They do not run the ball very well. The defense, we just saw them get torched by Illinois, who I said, again, is, is a gross football team. Um, and for whatever reason, they're not taking advantage of the best player on their football team and one of the best players in the Big Ten, and that's Jahan Dotson. Especially during the overtime, maybe they dialed something up for him, um, but if they looked for him or they targeted him, I missed it. In overtime, I would have called a Jahan Dotson play every single time. All nine overtimes, I would have dialed something up for Jahan Dotson. They didn't seem real interested in doing that. So um, I think that Penn State could be... They're either going to bounce back and they're going to find something that we don't currently see in them, or I think this could be the beginning of a downturn for them. Yeah. And I mean, you see this with James Franklin, like it felt like they got rattled and exposed against Iowa and the result is what we're seeing now. Um, I don't love that we're playing Penn state right after they lost, but to your point, like this could be the continuation or the, I guess the start of a downturn for them. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they were certainly able to stop Illinois from scoring. So the scoring defense was there. It was very much just stopping. Like, I don't understand how Illinois had 300 plus yards rushing. And well, only 10 I mean, points. Meredith, in fairness, I think you and I and the group in, in our kind of Slack chat could come up with a way to find Illinois or stop Illinois from scoring. They, they're they a really bad football team. Well, a we really... saw through nine overtimes exactly how easy it was to stop them from scoring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they need some creati- creativity with the three-yard plays, apparently. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, the game has maybe lost some luster, but I do expect Penn State... I think that Penn State will come in and play hard and look to get this thing back on track. I think that that will happen. But, you know, we saw a team that struggled epically last year. They closed the season strong, but, um, you know, Penn State, 
is not the Penn State that we saw in like 2018 and 2019. They've now, 2020 was a rough season. They've now lost two games in a row in 2021. So I, I don't know what's going on. I think some of the luster, like I said, has been removed from that game, but I do expect them to come in and compete. And if you've got Jahan Dotson on your team, um, I expect it to be competitive. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think they'll look to bounce back. Some other things just kind of going on nationally. You want to talk about gross teams and gross performances. Um, Oklahoma. Oh, I've got one. <laughs> uh, okay. I, I've got plenty, but I definitely want to get yours in there. The Oklahoma victory over Kansas. Kansas is truly, truly one of the worst football teams in college football. Um, and going they have back, been forever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, since the one magic season that Mark Mangino had, and I think they went to like an Orange Bowl or something. This is 15, 20 years ago. Um, they have been terrible. And they gave Oklahoma all they could handle. Credit to Caleb Williams. He made a hell of a play to steal the ball from his own running back. I still want to see a rule book definition of whether or not that's fair. Um, but Oklahoma takes care of business. Another team that struggled with an inferior opponent. And struggle might not be the right word. Cincinnati with a seven-point victory over Navy. Now, they were up 17 I think going into the fourth quarter, Navy put up 10 points, including a touchdown in the last minute. But Navy, dreadful okay, we football to, team. We're going to talk about this for a second. So okay. I went it, to a college. I went to a college that ran the triple option. The fact is, it is very challenging to mm -hmm. blow out a team that runs the triple option. The game will always be close. So I look at Cincinnati beating Navy by seven, and I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Like they beat them. They weren't going to blow them out of the water. Oh, get it because it's Navy. Um, <laughs> sorry. I think that's very fair. I think that anytime you are a school not playing against one of those triple option or like service academy teams that just tend to gravitate towards that, I think that's more than fair. But when you think about like voters and media pundits and things like that, they probably weren't super dialed into that game undefeated Cincinnati against a one in five, I think at the time, Navy team. Oh, yeah, they're bad. Navy's not good. So a lot of people on paper, they're going to see a seven point victory over a really bad football team. So those were a couple of the games that kind of, they caught my attention. Oklahoma State, they were number eight. They were undefeated. They lost, even though they were the underdog. The number eighth team, the number eight team in the country was an underdog to an unranked Iowa State team. I don't, quite understand that. Um, but I think it's it's pretty clear that we've started to narrow it down. There's still a lot of football to be played and a lot of things that can happen. But I think we've sort of started to dial, dial, uh, narrow it down to these five or six teams that are upper echelon. But even within, within those five or six teams, um, I think Ohio State clearly belongs and if I were an unbiased voter, which it might be impossible to turn that part of my brain off, but if I were an unbiased voter, my top couple of teams would be Georgia. I think you got to put Alabama up there. And, you know, Ohio State, to me, I, I could put Ohio State at two or three if I was trying to be unbiased. Yes, they lost early. Yes, their defense struggled early on. But... 
it seems like Ohio State now has a team that could put up 75 points if they wanted to on any given week and a defense that's trending in the right direction. And I've heard other people talk about it. Like I, I think Georgia-Ohio State, especially that matchup would be insane. But I think Ohio State is right now the second or third best team in the country. I just don't know where they're going to be in the polls because yeah. that's what's kind of throwing me off is the fact that you do have two undefeated teams up there. Well, that's the challenge, right, is the downside of the poll system and the college football playoff system that we have is it is your collective body of work um, as opposed to who's hot right now, right? So Ohio State, look, I mean, we're halfway through the season right now, but the team that they are now is very different than the team that lost to Oregon week two. Um, But unfortunately, that loss to Oregon is still going to count against them. Um, So... Yes, I would say that the best teams in the country right now include Georgia, includes Ohio State, um, certainly does not include a Big 12 opponent. We can, like, I don't know. Oklahoma has to lose at some point you would to someone. Think, you would think so. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, who are they losing to at this point? I mean, they play... Oklahoma State in the last week of the regular season and then may turn around and play Oklahoma State again in the Big 12 championship because that's how the Big 12 works. I think they still have Iowa State left. Um, Iowa State, as we've seen, um, has gotten better since they sort of tanked a little bit earlier in the season. Um, Real quick on Iowa State, Oklahoma State. Um, Did you see the touchdown called back for excessive celebration? Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up. That was probably one of the worst penalty calls I've ever seen. Not one of the worst taunting calls, not one of the worst, you know, pass interference. It's very subjective. That was one of the worst penalty calls I have ever seen. Like, the kid high stepped one Barely. time, stopped high stepping, went into the end zone, and then did a cheer with the Iowa State fans in the student section. And the cut touchdown got called back because of the high step that took place outside of the end zone. If that, and like, you couldn't even, I honest to God was sitting there like watching it in slow motion. And I'm like, well, I guess you could call that a high step. If that had been the difference in the game, I would have gone to Ames to riot with that, you know, that student section and with their fans. Like I would have made the, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 hour trip to Ames, Iowa and be like, this is not right. That was the worst thing I've ever seen on a football field. Um, Yeah, I'm with you. That was a terrible, terrible call. And it sucks. Like, especially in college, like if you want to police that more heavily in the NFL, fine, whatever, you know, they're paid professionals this is college. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a game. You're telling me the kid can't lift his foot up off the air, you know, seven inches and it's now a penalty. Come on. But, um, yeah, you know, nationally speaking, I think it's going to get more and more interesting as the season goes on. Um, I think Ohio state's trending in a really good direction. The ambiance of the game next week, I think will still be, a really fun, really cool environment, so I'm looking forward to it, and I'm just looking forward to seeing how the rest of the season plays out. I think college football has been a lot of fun this year. Even if your team is losing or has lost, deal with it. You know, parity's good for college football. It's made for a more fun environment and for a more fun season, so... 
this has been super enjoyable just like this podcast meredith i want to thank you um for for stepping in today this was great uh before i sign off anything you want to close with you want to plug your own pod do anything like that of course uh be sure to check out play like a girl uh megan hustline and i uh do it every week uh because we like to talk about sports too um and our opinions do count so every tuesday morning uh, check out for new pods um so for meredith myself i'm josh jean should be back for our sort of midweek preview pod uh, but until then find us on all your uh, podcast platforms like rate subscribe uh, and for meredith i'm josh signing off for hangout in the holy land and go bucks